This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, research which suggests we should be taking more notice of our cholesterol levels when we're in our 30s rather than waiting till your arteries are clogged. Most of us have taken advantage of digital health in the last year, from telehealth to online prescriptions to our digital COVID vaccination certificates, if you can get them, that is. But what's next? And better equipping people to understand the complications when they need to have a partial foot amputation, which happens more than you might like to think. Yeah, well, listen to the health report. You might avoid it, but if you have to have it, there's important information with Tegan a little bit later. And as New South Wales opens up more this week at 80% vaccine coverage of the over-16s, and Victoria marks the beginning of the end of its lockdown on Friday at 70% coverage, there is nervousness in both states about the extent to which cases will grow and the effect on hospitalisations, ICU admissions and deaths. Not to mention Queensland saying it's now going to open up you know, quite significantly on the 17th of December. Now, Denmark, which also opened up progressively, like we are doing, is now seeing a bit of a surge in cases since it opened up completely on September 10th. But countries which might make us more nervous are the UK, US and Israel, which have seen significant delta surges and rises in severe disease. In the United States and Israel, the large unvaccinated populations are clearly an important factor. But increasingly, analysts are concluding that waning immunity to vaccines is playing a significant role, with breakthroughs in fully vaccinated people who were jabbed six months or more ago. It suggests that we in Australia should get onto this now with third doses at the beginning of our opening up rather than chasing the issue when people are in ICU or dying. Professor Rhina McIntyre is an infectious disease and vaccine specialist and a researcher and heads the Global Biosecurity Programme at the University of New South Wales Kirby Institute. Welcome back to the Health Report, Rhina. Good afternoon, Norman. So what do the international data show in terms of breakthrough infections, hospitalizations and the vaccinated and so on? So there's a, a quite a large volume of data now from multiple countries that are all showing the same thing, which is that after about five to six months, there is um, substantial waning, particularly of the Pfizer, also the AstraZeneca, let's so the Moderna and... Um, it's been seen, you know, in Canada, in the US, the UK, Israel, all the countries that have collected data. And it's kind of panning out that the uh, Moderna seems to have, you know, less less waning than the Pfizer, which has less waning than the AstraZeneca. So um, from in the UK, for example, um, you know, the effectiveness overall dropped from... 66% to 47% for AstraZeneca and from about 90% to 69% for Pfizer after 20 weeks. And the drop is particularly after the age of 50. So the studies that have looked at it um, by age show that um, the waning really is more severe for people over 50. Uh, and that's because there's a phenomenon called immunosenescence, which is the progressive decline of the immune system that happens to all of us after we reach 50. Um, and it really correlates well with the pattern of disease severity we see with COVID. Um, and, and, In other words, the older you are, yeah. the worse you get it. Crudely. Yeah, and the less, less, uh, less you respond to vaccines. Now, just break it up for me, because there's two elements that they look at here in waning immunity. One is 
immunity to the infection itself, whether that be asymptomatic or symptomatic, and waning in the protection against hospitalisation and severe disease. What does yeah, it look like yeah. for those? So as time has gone on, you know, initially it looked like in the first, you know, up to the first sort of 15 weeks after vaccination, it didn't seem like hospitalisation and death was being affected that much. But beyond that period, both those outcomes start, you get waning against hospitalisation and death as well. So um, that's the concern and that's why the UK moved to giving everyone 50 and over a booster. And just on this booster thing, I mean, we in CoronaCast, Tegan and I in CoronaCast have stopped using the word booster and starting to talk about third dose. I mean, is it fair to say that these vaccines, if they'd had more time to work out the dosage, they would have all been three-dose vaccines? Yeah, this is an evolving picture. And, you know, this isn't the end of the story with vaccines. We'll see different vaccine strategies. We'll see second-generation vaccines. We'll see matched vaccines that are matched to the to the variants of concern and in my view it's going to end up being that it's a primary three-dose schedule Uh, and many vaccines do need a primary three-dose schedule so that's nothing new in the world of vaccines and what would you expect the duration of immunity to be if it were to be a three-dose schedule um we 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 don't know because we haven't had long enough follow-up um, if we're seeing two doses starting to wane after five to six months, you know, maybe three doses will last a year or more. Um, it's hard to say, really. These are things we're going to learn along the way. And what we need to do is be able to pivot rapidly as the evidence becomes available. Um, and some countries are doing that and others are not. And by pivoting, you mean what? Sort of introducing the booster, the th- third dose quickly? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, look at Israel, for example. They started vaccinating early. They have very ambitious in their vaccine strategy. And then, you know, when everything started um, coming apart at the seams in in June, when they started having a resurgence, you know, they moved pretty rapidly um, as the evidence came through about the waning to bring in the booster. So I think, you know, we, we have to be ready... Um, to be, we have to be agile. Otherwise, um, you know, to prevent morbidity and mortality, we have to be agile. Well, we've got the benefit to some extent of having most of the population quite freshly immunised. But there are people, particularly in residential aged care, the frail elderly and also healthcare workers who, who are now maybe seven or eight months, after getting towards eight months after yeah. their first vaccine. Presumably, they're quite vulnerable. As they we, are. As we we've, open we've up. We've already had... Uh, we've heard at a New South Wales health press conference that we had a fully vaccinated um, healthcare worker who ended up in ICU in, in a critical condition. So it's not necessarily a trivial thing for fully vaccinated people to get infected. And the waning really is an issue for everyone in 1A that was vaccinated in March, April, around that time. In terms of the opening up, we're going to be, I think the peak of vaccination, certainly in New South Wales, was around August. So, so we would be expecting to see the impact of the waning in the general community around February. But really, so what's your view in terms of should we be going back into residential aged care now with a, an intensive program? I think so. We're already seeing outbreaks in residential aged care and um, cases occurring in fully vaccinated people. 
um, and, uh, you know, those and other um, vulnerable institutional settings and healthcare workers, I think there is some urgency to, to get a recommendation, you know, to deliberate on and get some recommendations. Now, there's been, a recent, there's been a recent study of mixing and matching, and it's quite clear that mixing is the best strategy. Which vaccines are best? Because the Commonwealth has said Moderna and Pfizer is what they're going to use for boosters, or third doses, I should say. Yeah, I think that's that's fine. You know, the um, data shows that, for example, an AstraZeneca followed by an mRNA vaccine gives a really good boost. The other way around, not so much. So um, generally speaking, you know, with, uh, I think it would be an mRNA booster um, if you, whatever vaccine you've had, unless you've got a contraindication to the mRNA vaccine, in which case you can have another AstraZeneca. Well, let's see how quickly the Commonwealth gets on its bike. Thank you very much, Rainer. It's a pleasure. Professor Rainer McIntyre heads the Global Biosecurity Programme at the University of New South Wales Kirby Institute. This is RN's Health Report. Probably without knowing it during COVID, we've become much more comfortable with what's called digital health, using information and communications technology in our healthcare. A lot of us would have had a, health, a telehealth consultation with our GP or specialist, or more recently, wrestled with our digital identity and COVID-19 vaccine digital certificate. You may have even used your My Health record. Hopefully it won't take a pandemic to make another shift in Australia's digital health system. And to help find out what we'd actually find useful, the Australian Digital Health Agency is conducting a community survey and you still have a few weeks left to complete it. Amanda Catamol is the agency CEO. Welcome to the Health Report, Amanda. Thanks, Norman. Lovely to be here. So how has COVID changed things for Australia's digital health? Uh, it, it has changed things in just about every way, Norman. We have seen the most remarkable acceleration in uptake and engagement with digital health right across the healthcare system and, of course, by Australian consumers. And I think we've seen, you know, a few examples of those. But they don't necessarily obviously... recognise it's digital health, do they? It's just kind of routine it's stuff. It's exactly. It's just health. It is now just health. That's right. And, and I think what we're seeing now is... Um, people are expecting there to be digital tools available and what we need to do is to make sure that we continue to keep up delivering digital tools which, which consumers will then use in, in amongst wanting their more traditional ways of engaging with health like face-to-face -face consults but being able to also have a virtual one, grabbing a paper script or getting an electronic one. And, and it's really important that, you know, we're continuing to have this dialogue with what do Australians want out of their healthcare system, which will be underpinned by really changing, rapidly changing digital technologies, which is exactly why we're doing that survey that you mentioned in your intro. Now, one thing people don't want is to be left behind. So the elderly who may not have access to this or disadvantaged groups, um, the, the risk is with digital health that you're left behind in a digital um, desert. So I think the really critical thing about the way that we're seeing this now is that this is complementary to other ways of engaging the healthcare system. Um, we do not want to create a digital divide here. What we want to do is ensure that there are a whole range of ways that Australians can access their healthcare, whether or not it is face-to-face -face or virtual engagement, and always be able to have those other methods. But as well as that, I think given that we're seeing this rapid acceleration, and we really are, Australian consumers are embracing digital health as we call it, in a way that's just, you know, beyond anything we've seen before, is that we need to make sure that we're providing people the tools to do so. And so one of the ways that we do that is we're partnering with a really broad range of organisations who then provide opportunities for Australians in different parts of Australia 
to to get that sort of what we call that digital health literacy, where they uh, can have um, local opportunities to improve their own experience and understanding of digital health and how they can access it. Now, my health record, I'm, like I say, I'm a signed up fan, so I'll say that to start with, but it has been criticised for being clunky and having limited functionality. Where are you going with that? Because that's got enormous potential to really smooth out the system for people. I'm really glad to hear you say that. We absolutely agree. And I think... I but are think you going to make it less clumpy and more functional? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're lucky. We had this as a foundation. So we already had the foundations for people to have their own health in their hands in a, in a virtual way. What we need to do now and what I think COVID's done for us, like it has done for everyone, is accelerated the way that we are changing the record and making sure that as we uh, as we grow and develop it, it, it is less clunky, got more information in it that is the sort of information that Australians need when they need it. And that's why so much of the work we've been doing in the last 12 months has been focused on the, the ensuring that Australians can get the information related to their COVID experience, like their vaccination certificate, like their tests results, the ability to be notified about a second dose. And, and, our, and the way that we want to have this survey engagement is to continue to hear from Australians about what they want, and then for us to make sure that their record reflects the things they need when they need it. Now, it's certainly convenient people to have a telephone conversation for your GP. GPs are a bit mixed on it because they reckon they don't get paid enough for it. It tends, <laughs> tends to be a very transactional conversation. And we've had a story on the health report that perhaps some of the late cancer diagnosis is actually because of, of phone telehealth that the GP isn't seeing the patient in front of him or her. What moves are you making to kind of move away from the phone towards more modern uh, multimedia health consultations that probably will capture to a better extent the person's health and well-being? So the conversations being had right across the healthcare sector and led by Commonwealth Health and, and with our jurisdictional colleagues is about having a fit for purpose opportunity. So where it's a phone, what things could be the phone and how would that work? What things need virtual tools that are going to be more sophisticated and how do we support health practitioners to get the uplift they need to have those tools available to them? And what things do we know people want more face-to-face -face and that health practitioners are going to be able to deliver face-to-face? -face? So this it's a much more sophisticated um, conversation going on right across health and, th and, in, and with go governments are having with the healthcare sector to ensure that if we're going to go forward and we know we are with this as a sustainable part of healthcare delivery that we need to be really clear-minded about how it's going to work with the different options will be available. They're going to be fit for purpose to deliver the best healthcare for Australians. So how do people join in the survey? So you can go to um, digitalhealth.gov.au um, fill in your survey, it's all there in front of you and um, we would love to hear from as many of your listeners and Australians as possible so that we can help shape that, that future, Getting, making sure that we get right what Australians need for the future of their health. Uh, be careful what you wish for with a health report listener coming in there but uh, we'll, they'll be good for you. Thank you very much Amanda. Thank you. Amanda Catamol is CEO of the Australian Digital Health Agency and you can get the link to the survey at the Health Reports Programme page. The healthcare system doesn't really get too concerned about your risk of heart disease until you're middle-aged. And the way doctors are supposed to assess that risk is bringing together your age, your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels, your family history and other factors like diabetes to work out what might need to be done to avoid a heart attack or stroke over the next five or ten years. But the risk starts earlier in life and your arteries begin to silt up even in adolescence. And the question is whether it's worth checking the level of your bad cholesterol, say when you're in your 30s. 
A recent study suggests it might. Dr. Yi Zhang is a researcher at Columbia University's Medical Center in New York. Thank you for having me. This is something I've often wondered about because normally what happens is that you measure your cholesterol when you say you're 40 or 50 and you might do a total risk score on you. I mean, what you're really trying to measure is what's the effect of higher than average levels early on in just blocking your arteries progressively over time. Yeah, exactly. So majority of the previous study looking at LDL usually focus on one single measure, usually at middle order age. But some evidence have suggested that the cumulative burden of LDLC is actually also associated with cardiovascular disease risk in addition to someone's current LDL level. So that's what our study is trying to look at, whether your cumulative exposure early on in your lifetime, does that independently associate with your CVD risk later in life? And CVD being cardiovascular disease. So what did you do in the study? We did an observational study pulling together four large U.S. cohorts, and we look at three different LDL cholesterol measurement, one being the cumulative exposure of LDL during your young adult and middle age. And the other one is the time-weighted average of LDL level um, between this time period, which is the cumulative LDL level divided by the time duration during this period. And the last one is the LDL slope, which is how fast your LDL change from young adulthood to middle age. So we look at three different things and whether they associate with coronary heart disease, stroke or heart failure risk, independent of someone's LDL level at midlife. And these are groups of people that you've been following since young age or youngish age. They've had lots of physical examinations, you know their history, and they're healthy when you start off and you watch how they develop through the years. So you've got all these measures sitting away. And I think you had over 18,000 people included when you combined all these people. Right. We have a large sample size, but some of the participants, we have measurements starting from their really young, young age. But for most of them, we actually start the measurement during or around middle age. And what we did is we sort of imputed their young adulthood LDL level uh, using some statistical method and to estimate their cumulative burden of LDLC during this younger age period. So you had some people who started young, you had some people started in middle age in terms of the measurements, and you took what you learned from the young people and applied it to the middle-aged people in retrospect. What did you find? So what we found is that on cumulative LDL level and also time-weighted LDL level during the young adulthood and middle age were associated with an increased risk of coronary heart disease. And this association is independent of someone's LDL level at middle age. So can you quantify the risk in terms of how long you've got a raised LDL and how raised it's got to be? Some previous studies suggest there may be a threshold for cumulative LDL, but our study found that there really is no threshold. So the risk looks like it's cumulative. And if we really want to put a threshold, it seems that at least with time-weighted average LDL, the risk starting to increase at LDL level at about 100 microgram per deciliter, so which is not very high. So what's a general practitioner or a primary care practitioner to do? I mean, are you supposed to now start measuring people's cholesterol earlier on in life or what? I think the findings from our study may suggest that it's time to consider incorporating serial LDL measure on or the cumulative burden of LDL into clinical practice because currently clinical decision is mainly guided by someone's contemporary LDL levels. 
So it's a new thing for 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds, for example. Yeah, obviously more study are needed to see, you know, how many measures you will need to get a, a relatively reliable LDL trajectory or estimation of the cumulative LDL burden. But at least our study suggests it's time to start a conversation and start to think whether, you know, how, how we can incorporate these serial measures into clinical decision making. Now, in Australia, I'm sure in some health maintenance organisations in the United States, you don't make a treatment decision just based on your LDL level. You do it on your total risk. So are you a smoker? Is there a strong family history? Your age, age is very important. So they predict your risk of a heart attack or a stroke in the next five or 10 years. Now, when you're 30 years old, even with a high LDL, your chances of a stroke or a heart attack are infinitesimally small in the next 10 or 15 years, and you wouldn't qualify for treatment. What's the intervention when you find that you might have a 30-year-old who's tracking with a higher-than-average LDL level? Yeah, I think this is really an excellent question. So uh, it's the same thing in the US. So the current cholesterol guideline largely recommends statting based on the basis of someone's 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease. And as a consequence, as you mentioned, young adults usually are not eligible for statting and they are only eligible if they really have extremely high LDLC, for example, above 190. So maybe one thing to consider is instead of using a 10-year risk score for young adults, we may need to think something else, maybe a lifetime risk score or a longer-term risk score. And also to your question, I, I think the, the first line of treatment always should be lifestyle intervention. However, for some people, you know, diet and other lifestyle modification may not be sufficient. So for these young individuals, should we consider treating them early in life when it's maybe more effectively prevent cardiovascular disease in later life? It's a question for the policymaker. Yeah, which is the pharmaceutical industry would just love to know what the answer is. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Yi Zhang is in the Division of General Medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Each year, thousands of Australians have part of a foot amputated, often for complications associated with diabetes. It's a drastic intervention, and sometimes it's not enough. There are complications and often a need to amputate even more. Patients talk about feeling violated and underinformed about what was going to happen to them. Some experts say shared decision-making is the solution, including Michael Dillon, who heads the Department of Physiotherapy, Podiatry, Prosthetics and Orthotics at La Trobe University. He and some colleagues have developed an amputation decision aid to help with this, and he joins us now. Hi, Michael. Hi, Tegan. This decision aid was born out of the stories that you were hearing patients telling you about how their amputations were, really traumatic experiences. Is there a particular story that sticks out to you? Um. There's a number of stories. We um, we did some interviews with people um, about their experience of partial foot amputation, and um, and I guess what resonated for us is that uh, many people seemed really poorly informed about what the surgery would involve. Um, they weren't very clear about what the sort of outcomes were that they might expect, and very few people understood sort of the risks of complications and and reamputations, and and I guess we. Um, the sort of interviews that really stick out in my mind are, are two. Um, one was a person that we interviewed um, and their reflection after um, coming around after amputation surgery was that um, they that they felt uh, it was uh, really confronting. They were really surprised by how much of their foot had been amputated um, and they described that experience as, as confronting and horrific um, and they 
sort of felt violated afterwards. Um, it, it's hard to think about. Interview. Yeah, sorry, keep going. I was going to say the other interview that really stands out for me is one with a person um, who was talking about the challenges of uh, communication given the opioids that they are on for pain control. And they described, um, you know, uh, they described, you know, two hours had gone by and they still realised that they were looking at, at the fish tank. And uh, that really made us reflect that probably doesn't matter how good a consultation you might have about amputation surgery if, if that characterises your your, um, your thought processes at the time, uh, it's obviously really hard to take on new information. So, Yeah, it's hard to imagine a good amputation experience, but I suppose what you're trying to do is optimise it. Are you drawing from other fields like, say, breast cancer, where there's quite a lot of collaborative decision-making that goes into those sorts of amputations? Yeah, that's right. So um, I think there are some parallels for us in the very difficult decisions that many women make about breast cancer care. Um, so they might be decisions about uh, having a lumpectomy um, or a, a mastectomy or even a bilateral mastectomy. And we often see women make these choices for much more invasive surgery um, deliberately to reduce their risk of recurrence or cancer recurrence. Um, and in our case, we um, we think those decisions are probably well informed by uh, good research evidence, but probably also by the the genetic counsellors who often um, are very skilled at navigating those conversations with people. Um, but what we don't see is people um, facing amputation surgery um, having those same sorts of uh, good counselling options. Um, so we often think, you know, people often describe for us that you know, the amputation was really presented as a fait accompli and there wasn't really much by way of a meaningful conversation about what the different sort of options might be. And I think what that does is it leaves people um, uh, at risk of a really poor outcome. So I think if, at least if people know what the options are and they know what the likely outcomes and the risks might be, at least they can choose. And even if things go um, don't go quite as they expected, um, at least they're aware of the risks and they tend not to be as blindsided um, when inevitably sometimes things do go awry. And of course, we're talking here about people who have time to make this decision, not traumatic injuries, but people who've got a progressed disease. But what about the doctor's side of it? It feels self-evident why a patient would want to be informed. I'm sure doctors believe that they're doing the best they can to inform people. What more does your decision guide bring to this conversation? Yeah, I think what we see in the shared decision-making literature more broadly is that um, many health professionals do feel like they already do shared decision-making. Um, and I think what we see in those research studies, though, is that you know while people are often very good at holding a conversation, um, they don't necessarily present um, patients with all the treatment options. There are patients often presented with the options that a health professional might recommend. Um, and often patients are not necessarily provided with um, the opportunity to, to reflect or deliberate um, on those sorts of, of very difficult decisions. So I think what, what these decision aids do, I think, is put um, all the information on the table so that everyone has access to a, a good understanding about all the treatment options. Um, not just those a professional might recommend, as well as all the information about um, uh, 
uh, what those procedures involve, uh, the likely outcomes, as, as well as the risks. And I think that means that uh, everyone, uh, I think what we hope is that it empowers uh, consumers to be much uh, more engaged in those conversations because they're being armed with good information. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you, Tegan. It's been a real pleasure. Dr Michael Dillon is Head of the Department of Physiotherapy, Podiatry, Prosthetics and Orthotics at La Trobe University. That's a decision I hope I never have to make for myself, Norman. Yeah, that's right. Well, some people have no choice and, uh, and it's no fault of their own. They, they mm. just, just goes that way. So let's move well, on to questions. So if you have a question, you can email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And Norman, there's a couple of people who've written in today about supplements of varying types. Anne's asking about fish oil tablets and is asking whether you've, you've mentioned before in various media that you think that they're a waste of time or that that's what you believe the evidence says. Uh, Anne's asking, would you say the same thing about flaxseed oil? She's looking for omega-3s. Yeah. So the best way to get omega-3s is whole fish and, um, and just eating fish a couple of times a week. Um, the more research they've done into fish oil, the less benefit you seem to get from it. In large quantities, it's probably quite a good anti-inflammatory for joint disease, but that's really in pharmaceutical quantities rather than nutritional quantities. Flaxseed oil is probably going to end up in the same place. It's very popular. Um, it's plant-based. It's uh, It's got plant-based omega-3s. It's got polyphenols called lignans in it, which are precursors to what are called phytoestrogens. And some people believe that phytoestrogens are good for women as they reach the menopause. By the way, randomized trials of that suggest not, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's a functional food. There's alpha linoleic acid in it. It's, it's not a bad thing, but whether or not it's really going to be the route for eternal youth is, is another matter. And I, I talk about this in my book, so you think you know what's good for you. Flaxseed oil may fit with other things that go in the book, which is that cooking with flaxseed oil may actually release other um, polyphenols and antioxidants and so on in association with other foodstuffs. So it may be that cooking flaxseed oil, um, perhaps not too strongly, will um, will be a good would be a good thing to do. But it's not doing you any harm at all. Well, a similar question from Karen. She's asking specifically about folic acid. She's 69, in excellent health, drinks one coffee a day, but she was diagnosed with an iodine deficiency about 13 years ago and she takes a, a, a folic acid supplement for that. Uh, is wondering whether there's anything in the potential risk of cancer development from folate supplementation. This is um, a theoretical possibility. So when you're young and you're taking folic acid supplements to prevent spina bifida in your baby, and by the way, for any young woman listening to us, and hopefully there are millions of you, um, <laughs> As soon as you're in your childbearing years and you're thinking of having a baby or you're even sexually active, you should be starting to take folic acid supplements because the earlier you take them, the better. And as soon as you're pregnant, it's not too late, but you, you want to be loaded up with folic acid before you're, you conceive a baby. Later in life, there's, it's theory. It was put out by uh, an expatriate Australian researcher called John Potter in Seattle because folic acid is involved in cell growth and may fuel cell growth. And the idea was that if you took too much folic acid and you had, say, bowel polyps, that it might push these bowel polyps into becoming cancerous. And in fact, some anti-cancer drugs are anti-folate, so they're folate inhibitors to stop that growth process. It's largely theoretical, it's never been proven, and it's not something that you would wait, stay up at night worrying about. 
So folic acid supplements in someone like Karen's case, of course, we're not giving individual medical advice. No. We say that every time, but it's it's not necessarily a, a, a harmful thing. No, I, I wouldn't lose any any sleep over it. Again, if, if you're wanting to keep your folate up later on in life and go with all the things that we were talking about earlier in terms of polyphenols, antioxidants and so on, le- green leafy vegetables are probably the way to go. But if you've been told to use the supplement, we are not getting in the way of that at all, and I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. And here's one for you from Rachel. Um, I've just been listening to your podcast on snake bites and want to ask a question regarding immobilization after a snake bite. We do a lot of walking on the Bimelon track in WA. If there was to be a snake bite after the limb has been splinted and bandaged, would it be better to wait till medics can come uh, rather than carry the person back to the car? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually, we have had a couple of people writing in about Christina Zdenek's snake bite story last week, which if you have not heard, please go back through your podcast feed and listen to it. It is such a wild ride and I loved it. It is um, spooky. It's really good. This keen hiker here already carries a uh, snake bite kit with her, but it was it was good sort of reminder of how to be careful. Uh, Rachel and to other people who've also e- um, emailed in, we have emailed your questions to Christina, who has replied saying she will get back to us. So this is a bit of a teaser, I suppose, to listen to our next mailbag segment in which we will answer these questions. But my understanding, not an expert, not Christina. And never that, having been bitten. Well, thankfully, and hopefully it stays that way. What I was told when I was taught how to manage, self-manage a snake bite was that it buys you hours having that um, limb immobilised. So as long as you can get it on quickly, you've, time becomes on your side in a way that it was not when you first were bitten. Another one for you, Tegan. I've read and heard a lot about conflicting information about different types of exercise and how often to do them. I'd like to know how often should we be doing each type of exercise each week, such as cardio, resistance, yoga, recovery exercise, like gentle walking and Pilates. Is, it's a is great Pilates question. gentle? I'm not sure it is. Uh, it's, if you're doing it right, it doesn't feel very gentle at the time. Uh, no, it's, it's one of those ones that we get a lot of questions about. Um, ABC Everyday, our colleagues there, did a story about this some time ago, sort of saying, OK, what's the minimum we have to do? And they talked to a few uh, personal trainers and exercise physiologists about that. The Australian government guidelines are pretty clear and they basically say you should be getting two and a half hours of moderate intensity or 1.5 hours of high intensity activity per week, plus two muscle strengthening activity sessions a week as well. And minimising the amount of time you spend sitting and lying down. And so how you do that is kind of up to you. And that's a minimum. Like you're probably as an average punter, not going to be over-exercising. And for people aged over 65, it's actually more. Um, The government recommends 30 minutes of moderate intensity a day if you can. And if you can't do 30 minutes, build up to it. And to look for strength, flexibility and balancing exercises in the mix there as well, just to keep your body moving and good. And so from it's my... Not just that, sorry to interrupt, but it's mm. not just that. So muscle strengthening is really important because it's, it helps with diabetes prevention, changes your metabolism, you burn more calories you know, at rest if you do that. And the more intense, the better, um, assuming that... But you know, if you're sedentary, then um, just a brisk walk can be enough. But if you're able to gossip about your friends <laughs> and during the walk, you're not doing it quite intensely enough. Well, and the, the benefits just keep on coming through. We had um, one of our top five scientists on a few weeks ago saying that it could protect your eyes. But my adage is that the best exercise is the one that you do. So finding something that you love and that you want to do rather than feeling like you're punishing yourself on a treadmill. So 
I like hiking. I like rock climbing. I like doing yoga. You're a seven-minute workout person, aren't you, Norman? Well, I am when I can't get out and it's raining and it's lousy weather. But um, so my, my, pro, my, my regime is um, there are quite high stairs near where I live. So I will go out and I'll do 10 ascents of the stairs, which will usually take me about half an hour using double stairs. So I get pretty puffed out. I'd be sweaty after that for sure. And then I'll do a seven-minute, uh, probably two seven-minute workouts which strengthen various parts of my musculature. And, uh, and I've also bought a weight, some weights. Actually got one, I got, an, I tell you, I, I got a, a weight nicked. I was looking, <laughs> I, was, I left a weight and my mat, my mat, my fancy new mat, down at the bottom of the stairs. And I've done that lots of times. And I got back down and the, the weight had been nicked and my, my expensive mat was still there. So I've now only got one weight. I'm going to have to get another one. Oh, well, there's a very strong thief out there now, Norman. Yeah, yeah, I know. Good luck you have to, to learn well, how I to thought, run faster. I thought he was going them. to be limping, carrying the weight. I thought I could catch him, but I assume it was a him. You obviously need to uh, to invest in some heavier weights so you're not slowing them down enough. Oh, that's right. Or a chain. <laughs> well, that's everything in today's mailbag. But if you've got questions, again, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au, and we'll pick them up next time. Yeah, see you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.